0: I think that what was at stake with this book was to uh, to bury this, uh, this uh, unfortunate grandfather. And I had the feeling that even if she was very uh, strongly against me to do that, I think it will, in fact, be a good thing for my mother too. You know, when you have a ghost in a family, if you did bury it, after a moment, it's, it may be a better thing for everyone. And there was a few years ago, my mother, she told me, "Well, I think, uh, I think you, you're right. You were right to write this book.":
1: You just heard the voice of the French author, screenwriter and filmmaker Emmanuel Carre, who is my guest on this episode of "How to Proceed." In this episode, Career talks about the perils of writing about himself and others. He talks about rapture and joy and his love of poetry, why it has become important to read and reread lines and verses of poetry and reciting them from memory. He talks about the gospels. Christianity, he says, is perhaps more about being a bad Christian than a good Christian. He also talks about depression a theme he touches upon in many of his books and explores in great detail in his latest book, Yoga, the experience of depression. There are no words to properly describe it, he says. But before all that, we talk about ghosts, about how in every act of writing, in every book, as perhaps in every life, there are ghosts haunting the margins. Career is our very last guest in the How to Proceed project. My name is Lynn Ullman, and together with the House of Literature in Oslo, I created this podcast as the world, as we knew it, changed. In a short span of time, we have seen the ravages of the COVID-19 pandemic and witnessed social and political upheaval around the globe. With new vaccines, on the one hand, and on the other, the beginnings of long-overdue hard conversations about what kind of life we want to leave behind to our children, we have seen hope, too. We aired our first episode, my conversation with novelist Ali Smith, almost exactly a year ago to the day. Since then, all during this turbulent last year, we have engaged writers from around the world to reflect upon reading and writing, art and creativity, and the times we live in right now. Emmanuel Carrer has won many awards and accolades for his lifelong engagement with transforming the world and his life into literature. His unclassifiable books, non-fiction novels as he himself calls them, blend history, reportage, philosophy, and theology with a personal and moving narrative. His books include The Adversary, My Life as a Russian Novel, Lives Other Than My Own, Limanov, and his most recent publication in Norwegian, The Kingdom, Rike, which he tells the story of the founding of Christianity, magnificently translated by Tove Bakke, who is currently working on the translation of his latest book, Yoga, to be published in Norwegian next year. To write a book, Kareer has said, You've got to be persuaded that you're the only person who could write it. In a search for truth in all its guises, he dispenses with the rules of genre, with the passion and intellectual curiosity that has made career one of our most distinctive and important literary voices. So please join me for this, at least for now, final episode of How to Proceed and my conversation with Emmanuel Carrier. Just a little heads up. Making podcasts in the age of COVID can be technically challenging. Microphones don't work as planned. Voices on phone lines sound like voices on phone lines did 50 years ago. Well, the sound quality of this episode is not optimal. As I listened to the recording of the conversation, I was reminded of that beautiful Michael Ondaatje quote from his memoir In the Skin of a Lion. The quote goes like this. The first sentence of every novel should be, Trust me, this will take time, but there is order here, very faint, very human. So let us just assume that this novelistic wisdom applies to conversations as well, not just this one with Emmanuel Carrier, but to all the important conversations we try to have as we proceed from here. In this case, the sound quality is not terrific. But trust me, there is order here, very faint, very human. First of all, I want to thank you so much for joining me here in the House of Literature in Oslo by phone.
0: Thank you. I'm glad
1: to join you also. You know, this is our very last podcast interview. We've been doing this podcast called How to Proceed for a year now. We started just after the pandemic broke out. Yes, I see. You are my last guest, and I'm so happy to welcome you here to this empty literature house. And I hope to welcome you once to a full house when we can all meet in person.
0: Oh, I'm happy and honored.
1: I always start these interviews by asking where you are. Where are you?
0: Well, I'm in, in my apartment in Paris. And it's a new apartment. I moved there about uh, three weeks ago, so it's uh, still a mess. But, well, it's it's sunny today in Paris. So It's quite warm. And, uh, well, no, it's a nice day.
1: You know, another question that I always ask is, what are you reading right now?
0: I'm always reading two or three books in the same time.
1: But basically, right now, I'm reading uh, a book by Henri
0: Michaud. I don't know how much uh, Henri Michaud is familiar to Norwegian readers. He is one of our most prominent poets of uh, the 20th century in France. He is a very, very special writer. He used to write prose, He used to write poetry. He was also uh, making some kind of engravings and by that. No, he was a very, very original writer. So he is one of my favorite writers. But I am always, in fact, reading the book of Henri Michaud.
1: Why? Why is he one of your favorite? And why are you always reading him?
0: Uh, What he writes is absolutely always unexpected in the way he, you know, he coins the sentences, the the way he thinks. Uh, uh, It always uh, puts you out of the conventional way of uh, seeing uh, things, telling things. It's uh, it's a permanent uh, lesson of uh, seeing things differently. I don't know what Michaud translated in Norwegian, but maybe he's the kind of writer which is not easy to translate, you know, which is is the, as a lot of poets in fact.
1: As a lot of poets. So I wanted to ask you a general question because I was, I've been spending day and night with you now for the last many, several weeks. Um, I have read you before and now I have read you again in preparation for this Podcast.
0: I am mm-hmm. very honored.
1: <laughs> there are so many ghosts in your books. Ghosts. Ghosts. Yeah, Mm-mm. yeah, you're right. Ghosts, people disappearing. You know, death, but not quite death. Uh, this this in between state uh, between life and death seems to be uh, a running theme in your books. Do you agree? Oh, yes, I agree. I'm not as much aware of that. But uh, no, yes, it must be
0: true. In fact, I've been, I mean, as a reader, when I was a teenager, I began a long career as a ghost story reader. <laughs> really? I love that. I've been loving that all my life. Maybe it's a, it's a clue to what I i, I write. But uh, I am more aware of that uh, obsession as a reader than as a writer
1: what kind of ghost stories did you read as a teenager
0: Oh, the, you know, I used to read a lot of an English specialty, which is, you know, anthologies of ghost stories, mm. things like that. I think I have read such a lot of them. I think I am a leading encyclopedia in this domain, in this field. I think there is hardly a good ghost story that uh, that I haven't read, in fact, I am uh, and I, I am still still excited with this kind of thing. I can't really explain why, but it began very early. I, I, it began, I think, by reading Howard Phillips' Lovecraft, which was one of the first things that impressed me. And, and it impressed me for, for my whole life, in fact.
1: But these ghosts keep appearing also in your own work, in different shapes. Sometimes the ghosts are dead and they are returning sometimes it's someone who has disappeared like in my life as a russian novel sometimes it seems almost like you are haunted by or you or the narrator are haunted by by the living
0: well in fact when you say you are the narrator i am the narrator at least in this book in most in most of my books i shall not try to you know to uh, to hide no, it's I am the narrator. Uh, that, that's me who t- I talk under my own name. So uh, no, I don't uh, pre- pretend it to be uh, some kind of uh, narrator di- di- different of me. Uh, that's uh, well, the book which you, uh, which you uh, refer to in my life as a Russian novel. It's uh, yes, it's true. It's it's uh, it's some kind of ghost story because it, that it tells about real ghosts. Which used, which was my uh, grandfather on, on my mother's side, who disappeared by the end of uh, World War II. It seems that he disappeared because he used to be a uh, uh, to collaborate with the with the with the Germans during the occupation of France. He was not, uh, you know, a high rank collaborator. No, he was he was a translator and that uh, he worked for the Germans in Bordeaux in the say, as a translator. And that's why he, uh, he disappeared by the end of the war. If he had survived a few weeks more, he maybe would have been on trial and he would have, well, it would have finished for, uh, one month of jail or something like that. But it was just at the at the moment of uh, the liberation of uh, France and especially of Bordeaux, and I guess he was killed in this uh, great confusion. And so uh, it, it's very different for, for someone who was dead, and who who disappeared, someone who disappeared. You don't you don't know what happened to him, and, and he really is a ghost. And um, and also he disappeared in. Uh, Conditions in, in in a situation where it was uh, there was something shameful in his uh, disappearing. That's why, for these two reasons, because he disappeared and he disappeared in a, a shameful uh, way, that made him some kind of ghost in my family. And that's why this book, my life as a Russian novel, which tells a lot of other stories, that its heart, in a way, is this. Uh, very, uh, well, the dark inside the figure of my uh, grandfather.
1: In many of your other books, too, I get this sense that there's always something that's disappeared, or that you can't quite see, or that you are trying to bring back to life through language, and that you, since you are the narrator in these nonfiction books and nonfiction novels... That you are haunted by something that there's always a ghost, if it 's your grandfather, but it could be others too other other forms of disappearances or
0: what are you what are you thinking about
1: well, just last night, I was thinking about this idea of invisibility because I was reading about this film that was based on an idea of yours uh, it's a recent film called "Blind Spot in English. And there a young man can turn himself invisible and he becomes invisible by hyperventilating, by breathing very hard, almost as if he is having an anxiety attack. And it made me think that this idea of disappearance, invisibility about is, is something that goes through so many things that you write, that, that you are searching for stories that are long gone.
0: Ah, I would not have thought about that, but I think you're
1: right. This theme of invisibility and about being haunted by something. And then I had just finished reading The Kingdom. But that's a story about you. Well, it's a story about the first Christians, but then it's also a story about you looking for your faith or trying to see what happened to your faith in God and going through old, disappeared notebooks or notebooks that, that you are finding again. In other books, there is old notebooks, for example, from the romance history. It seems there's always a, a sense of haunting. I might be wrong, but this is just something that I was thinking when I was reading about this film, about invisibility.
0: No, no, you are, you're, you're, you're right. You're right. And we are speaking
1: about film,
0: I wrote... A TV series which was called in French *Les Hosenia*, and I am quite proud of my part of this, which I only wrote the the first season and not earlier the whole first season. But I think it it was a very very good story. Not not in itself, you know, the story of people who were uh, turned back from uh, from the country of dead people. But the fact that it was treated in a completely realistic way, you know, without, with always asking the question, if it were true, how would it happen? Uh, you know, not like a, a zombie movie, or Not, but if it happened to, to us, to, uh, if it was my uh, sister-in-law who died and who is coming back. How will it happen? What will be my reaction? What will be... Uh, and we, we treated the whole story like that. And it was a very uh, exciting uh, exercise. And I think the result is quite convincing. I was very happy with that. And it's a real example of uh, a modern ghost story.
1: Yes, it is. It's, it's beautiful. I saw it a few years ago. It's beautiful. Thank you. You know, I want to go back to something you said a little earlier. You said, I am always the narrator. I'm not going to kid around about that. Uh, I am the narrator of my books. Uh, It's me. And I want to quote something that you said in Paris Review. You said, I consider it an essential rule not to write things that would cause real people to suffer. And I completely transgressed it. I wrote things that made the woman I love suffer and things that made my mother suffer because she didn't want me to write about her father. I did something I morally disapprove of, but honestly, I don't regret doing it. I think when you said this, you were talking again about my life as a Russian novel. But I want to talk to you a little more generally about writing about yourself and writing about other people which is what you do when you write about yourself you write certainly about other people and and sort of the how you navigate in in that area
0: the fact is that writing about oneself there is no problem about that even if you say things that can appear appear shameful or very unpleasant to to say or which reveals very uh, unpleasant aspects of your character. Well, you decide what you tell about yourself. So uh, sometimes people say that it's very uh, courageous of you to tell that. No, it's not courageous at all. You, you decide what to say if you decide to hide something, which I try not to do, but um, if you decide to, to hide something, you hide something. You are, you are the master of, of the thing. As far as other people are involved in the in the process, because they are close to you, because the the, the book is, it deals with your their relationship with you, because you tell things about them, what is at stake is very very different on a moral point of view. And well, I confessed in this uh, Paris Review interview, and I can confirm that in this book. Uh, which you referred to my life by the Russian novel. Uh, Yes, I transgressed it. I uh, told things about my uh, grandfather that my mother didn't want me to tell. Uh, I told things about my girlfriend of that time, which were very, uh, it was uh, unpleasant. It was not uh, very benevolent. And it it was uh, hard for her well fortunately in both occurrences, it turned out well that it, it needed some time and years more than months but that uh, I felt that I did something which is which uh, which was wrong in fact and uh, and uh, I uh, I tried not to do it again but it's very it's very complicated it's very complicated for the next book which was uh, called the library that my home the rule of the game was pretty different because I promised to all the people whom I portrayed in the book that I will give them to read and that I would accept uh, all their corrections or suggestions and I did and uh, I was afraid of in fact my publisher told me uh, if you do that there will, nothing will be left of your book and that's that's not what happened. They asked for maybe a two very small corrections and uh, that the book well was uh, exactly what I wanted and what they agreed to. And that's why this book, which deals with very uh, sad or tragic events, in fact I wrote it in a very in a quite comfortable way on a psychological level because I felt uh, I had some kind of uh, legitimity. And uh, and uh, and I love that. I would be happy to write another book in this uh, moral and psychological comfort.
1: Here in Norway, we have had many debates about what is often called autofiction or autobiographical novels or non-fiction novels, as I think you call them. You
0: have Knausgaard, yes.
1: <laughs> we have Knausgaard, whose uncle did not at all like that he wrote about the family. But we also had a Vigdis Jot, who's a beautiful novelist, whose sister got so upset about Vigdis Jot's novel that she wrote her own counter novel. We've had another author called Geir Gulliksen, who wrote a novel about the breakup of a marriage. And his ex-wife went out into the paper and said that she didn't like this and objected to the way that she felt that she had been portrayed. So there have been many debates here in Norway, as I know there has also been in France and also with you, about people who are people in your life who then find themselves as being characters in in the book and who object to that. I think also this happened with you, with uh, yoga and uh, your ex-wife. Yes, it happened
0: with the, the last book, Yoga. It, it, it's an autobiographical book. Quite naturally, she was a, an important character in the book. I think I, I wrote about her very, very uh, kindly and respectfully. There was, a, And she asked me to remove her completely out of the book. And for me, it was very difficult because she was a part of the book. But I decided to... To obey her, and uh, and I did. So uh, I thought it was a bit unfair to, after that, to you know, to complain about <laughs> about the book. And she she was not anymore in the
1: book. But to the larger question about having and writing about people who are in our lives and making them into characters, and as you yourself said in Paris Review. You don't want to write things that will cause people to suffer, but but when we write about people, they will almost never like it. Isn't that your experience? Except with that one book, uh, yes, one yes, book except, that you mentioned.
0: Except, except that book. Except that book. We have been talking about where the people who were depicted in the book were quite happy uh, with it, and, and in fact, uh, the you know, the two main characters of this book, we are still very, very good friends. And I I would say, I I would dare to say that they are proud to be part of this book. It's as if we we shared something with which is is this book. But in fact, it's really an exception. But there is a big difference if you write about the privacy of people who are close to you and if you write about characters which uh, you know, I have written this book about Edouard Limonov who was a a Russian writer, politician political activist uh, some kind of punk a very controversial character he knew that I was writing about him and uh, certainly he was not uh, in fact, I think he didn't really like the book. He didn't really like the portrait of himself in the book, but he liked the fact that the book was a success. It made him more popular than he was in Western Europe. So it's But You know, when you write about such a character, you are not, you don't have the same, uh, you don't need to have the same scruples then if you write about your ex-wife or some of your friends or someone, uh, Because, you know, he's a public character. He used to write himself a very, uh, sometimes very roughly about uh, other people. So there is no problem at all. You know, if I decide to write a book about uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, well, I, I consider I have all the rights. Uh, you can be uh, sued if, if that, uh, but it, that's not a moral problem.
1: It's the moral problem that I'm interested in talking to you about because it's it's a debate that's all over the world. And I think that many of your books, you also tackle that problem. You write about that problem. And it's, you know, I was so moved by your long letter to your mother, if we go back again to my life as a Russian novel, mm-hmm. and because that book ends with a letter to your mother because she you wanted to write about this ghost, yeah. your grandfather, your mother's father. And your mother said, no, I don't want you to write about that. Yeah. And then of course, because she says, this is the one thing I don't want you to write about. That is the thing that you have to write about. And you end the whole book with a very moving letter to your mother. And I'm Wondering, how did you manage to write about your mother, who is herself a famous uh, intellectual and writer in France, when she didn't want you to write about this part of her story? Because it was her story too. How did you manage to do it anyway?
0: Well, it, it was pretty, it was difficult, you know, I, I...
1: Why was it difficult?
0: Well, because she told, she asked me not to do, and uh, and uh, I did agree with her in the sense that I thought that I have the same right to write about my grandfather than than she. Uh, but uh, well, it was a real transgression to uh, to uh, to disobey my mother on on a, on a question which was so important for her. Well, I did, and fortunately, uh, it, it didn't turn out uh, that, that, that there was a risk, yeah.
1: Would you do it again? Uh? Would you do it again? I mean, I'm just trying to find out where the boundaries go for you because these are issues that I am struggling with too. Uh, and many writers, where do the boundaries go? How did you write about your mother and your mother's story, which is also your story, when she didn't want you to write about it? I have that same question for me in my life. So I'm really wondering how did you do it and, and how did you do that transgression without being so overwhelmed by committing that transgression that you ended up not doing it?
0: You know, I think the, it comes back to what you were saying at the beginning of our discussion about ghosts. I think that what was at stake with this book was to, uh, to bury this uh, this uh, unfortunate grandfather. And I had the feeling that even if she was very uh, strongly against me to do that, I think it will, in fact, be a good thing for my mother too. You know, when you have a ghost in a family, if you did bury it, after a moment, it's, it may be a better thing for everyone. And there was a few years ago my mother she told me, well I think uh, I think you you're right. you were right to write this book. Uh, she told that to me maybe five uh, well, or six years ago, which means uh, which we knew the, almost uh, ten years after the book was published and and, uh, and we saw each other, we had good relationship, but we never never talked about the, the book again, except at that moment. Where she told, well, maybe you were right to write it. Uh, and it was, uh, well, I was happy to hear
1: that. Of course. And now? And now what? <laughs> now I'm just thinking that your ex wife is upset or objects to having been portrayed or being portrayed in your work. So, what is it about the women in your life? Who- the fact is, the fact is that no, but the fact that when we were married,
0: when we were together, I portrayed her in my books, with which she agreed to, and she was she she told that she was very happy about that. She told it not only to me but publicly in interviews, things like that. And when she asked me not to do it anymore, I did what she asked me. That's the uh, the, the question could be. Why did you did I agree to do this? Because uh,
1: so why did you agree to do this? Uh, is it out of uh, delicacy,
0: uh, uh, delicacy, out of cowardice, uh, out of it's, it's uh, I, I decided that she had the right and she had the, she had the, some kind of formal right not to appear in the book. But it was for me it was difficult and it was not difficult for only from uh, a moral point of view, because, because of mor- on a moral point of view, I, I, I behaved as I, I, I behave well in a way. But on a, on, a, on a literary and artistic point of view, well, it was something quite complicated to to remove from a book someone who is a, who is a kind of part of it.
1: Do you think you would read for us, Emmanuel Carrère, the part about your mother and you? from My Life as a Russian Novel in English?
0: Uh, Yes, I can do that. The next morning, as I sit on the terrace with my mother for a last coffee before driving back. Silence, the clink of spoons, tension. Then, abruptly, without looking at me, Emmanuel, I know that you intend to write about Russia about your Russian family, but I ask one thing of you, and that is not to touch touch my father, not while I I am alive. It's strange that I was expecting this. I had been waiting for her to say this to me one day, and I was even expecting it just then, as the silence dragged on. After a few more moments of silence, I replied that I understand. I know why she's saying that, that her request is devastating because, in effect, it kills me as a writer. Don't be absurd. If you are so interested in your Russian origins, there are a thousand other stories to tell. I don't see what drives you to dig up this one. But Mama, if I became a writer, it was precisely to tell the very story, to be done with it one day. If there is one thing that must not be said, you know it is inevitably the only thing that can and must be said. It isn't your story, it's mine. In any case, you know nothing about it, and neither does Nicola, who was my uncle. I am the only one who knows it, and I wish it to die with me. You are mistaken. Maybe I know nothing about it, but it's my story too. It has haunted your life, which means it has haunted mine and it will haunt and destroy my children, your grandchildren, because that's what happened with secrets. They poisoned the generation.
1: In this podcast, every author that we interview asks a question of the next author. Ah, today, And I have a question to you from... Rachel Cusk, and I want to play that question for you. So his question, which sounds a little aggressive, but it's not meant that way, uh, is to what extent have you experienced your masculinity as an advantage?
0: Well, I guess uh, to the same extent as uh, most male, white people, about 60, where I lived in a way where, in, in a time and in a way where it was, in fact, objectively uh, easier to be a man. And I wasn't even really aware of that. As you know, when, when it's, a, we know, that the kind of thing that goes with, without saying, you know, it's, it's a, now things are changing, as we all know, that at the time, I have been raised and I spent most of my adult life. People of my generation, I see how things are quickly and efficiently changing, and I am uh, impressed by that. And I and I also get more and more aware of all that I was not really very conscious or aware when I, uh, uh, let's say, uh, twenty or even ten years ago.
1: You weren't aware of. Of the privileges or advantages, aware of the privilege
0: that that was masculinity at that time, and I must confess, well, I, I was part of this uh, uh, numerous people for where this privilege went uh, without saying, and it it doesn't, it less and less goes with goes without saying, and so it's it obviously a good thing that for a long time, well, I I, I was. Uh, uh, a man, uh, a bourgeois, quite a, a bourgeois intellectual, uh, not rich but quite uh, who always lived very decently with a decent income, uh, with a, a pretty easy life, and being a, a male was part of it.
1: Do you think that this new greater awareness of the privileges or advantages of being a white male writer will in somehow affect your writing? Do you write differently now, today, than you than you would five, ten years ago?
0: I don't know. I don't know. The fact is that it deals with this question of what goes without saying, and it's very difficult to uh, to to be aware of this, uh, even for oneself. You know, that's uh, that's uh, it's called a certain a point a blind point in in. Um, so you know from an intellectual uh, point of view, well, this this awareness exists, it's part of my life. In my work, in all this, uh, which uh, uh, also deals with the unconscious, with things that are quite archaic also, I'm not aware of that. I'm not aware of that. I don't know.
1: You know, I heard another interview with you. Um, it was a radio interview. And you talked about your Russian heritage. And I know that you've tried to learn the Russian language, and that you had a notebook at some time where you wrote Russian words, but that you weren't really able to learn Russian. I have the same problem with French, actually. I've just always tried to learn French, and it's I've never managed But in this interview, Emmanuel, you said something about a song. And I don't know if it was your mother who sang this song for you when you were little. It was a Russian song, uh, like a lullaby.
0: Yes, it's a very, very famous lullaby, which in fact, it seems to be, you know, how to say... um, a very, a very, very old and uh, anonymous song. But in fact, it's not anonymous at all. The text been re- was written by Lermontov. But I think all Russian children were, uh, uh, had uh, heard and uh, remembered this song. Yes, sure.
1: Did your mother sing the song for you when you were a boy?
0: Yes, yeah, she did. She did.
1: Can you sing it? Do you remember it? Oh, Do you remember yes, the I can, song?
0: I can sing at least the, the beginning. That's my, my my singing yes. is crazy bad and and my Russian not better but it's a spe- you will you I think you will recognize it ti moy tetek moy prekrasny bayu skybayu tikho smotrit mesyastny kolybeu tvayu Baju. thank you
1: that was beautiful you. you know I wanted to talk to you about something, and your singing now gave me great solace and I want to talk about one of the themes in your latest book called yoga and I read in several interviews that you said that your plan was to to write a small and light and pleasant book about yoga but in fact it became a book about many things but also a harrowing description of of depression yeah and I want to quote something that you said to the writer White Mason in New York Times Magazine uh, in 2017. You say, I've lived a mostly privileged life. I never had any real money problems. Professionally, I knew some success fairly quickly. I'm in good health. At the same time, the thing I've carried in my life that's a little heavy is a tendency to depression. Occasionally, there are years that aren't exposed to it. Then it comes back the best remedy to it is work. And when work isn't there, and when my sense is that work isn't possible, there's great fragility as a result.
0: Yes, but how can I say better? It's, <laughs> it's true. It's true, yeah. And uh, part of this book is the story about of, uh, well, the real uh, uh, really uh, abysmal depression yes, which, uh, which took me for more than four months in a psychiatric war that I did, I received, no, it was a very, uh, uh no, it, it was a deep depression. Yes, I, I had bouts of depression before, and some were pretty strong, but this one was unexpectedly uh, violent. And yes, yes, I agree with what I said. I, I had Quite a privileged life, nice. but this is the we, we all have our burdens. And we all have what what makes us miserable. Uh, and for me, that that uh, most of you know of my uh, material and social life was very quite easy. I come from uh, from the bourgeoisie. I, well, my life quite was pretty easy on this. Uh, even even in terms of uh, career, uh, family, uh, love, I had quite uh, an agitated and chaotic uh, love life. But quite well, quite uh, sometimes very happy, uh, sometimes less happy. But uh, the thing that uh, is great, great, great weakness, as as all uh, have weaknesses, it's this uh, psychic fragility, which is a. Uh, which I think is less and less purely psychological. I think you know there is something. I don't know if it's you know if there is something genetic or something like that. But there is some something that is also uh, chemical. I think chemical. Now, well, that's a, that's a great and complicated question. But because you know, I've spent uh, about thirty years of my life. On uh, the couch of psychoanalysts, uh, not really thirty years of my life, but during thirty years, maybe it was uh, fifteen years in fact, because there was interruptions. But uh, it was uh, I was uh, a great uh, added customer of psychoanalysis, and. Uh, I discovered that after this, this quite terrible depression, where I, where in fact I was in the hands more psychiatrists than in the uh, than with psychoanalysts, I discovered, and it was a very, uh, well, in a way unpleasant discovery, that chemistry, in a way uh, that that you know, medicine things, uh, was more efficient than was you know the. The treatment by words and and uh, you know it's it's far more satisfying uh, intellectually to think that you uh, uh, your condition improved because of a personal research of a personal effort something you do, you, uh, than by the, the the fact that you are administered some kind of uh, chemical molecules or and that. In my experience, I discovered that it, it worked far better and that you, it has nothing to do with your merit or effort or insight. And, um, well, that was a discovery. I don't like it, but I, I, uh, I have to face it.
1: In yoga, you certainly write about this depression that you experienced, which was worse than other depressions that you've had before, how were you able to write about it, to give it a language?
0: Well, I hope I did. I hope I did. I still have the feeling that it was, uh, you know, one always feel that it could have done better. I guess you feel that. We all writers feel that. But in this special case, I really had the feeling that uh, what I wrote was far beyond the real experience, that it was very difficult, not difficult, impossible to find the right words, you know, to express what was the experience in, that, in its, uh, in its uh, horribility, if you can say that. So, uh, well, I did my best to be uh, faithful to this experience, to, uh, to transcribe it as precisely and faithfully and honestly, that when you are able to write it, you are so different from the one who experienced it. I know that people who went through such experience told me that I described it well, that they have read that and they recognize what they, they went through or what uh, their beloved ones daughter or uh, or father or anyone or husband or wife, experienced.
1: What was it that they recognized? What words did you use about the horribility, the terror of depression that was recognizable? I think,
0: uh, well, I did my best to put into words something that, can't really put into words because when you are inside of it, you don't have words. Words are, are absolutely uh, out of reach, they, it doesn't exist anymore. And when you, words come back, when it's possible to pronounce them, to write them, well, you are, you, you are really far from this state than you try to describe. But I did try, and maybe I did try with enough. Uh, Faithfulness, uh, honesty. That fortunately, and it was a real a relief for me. There were people who told me, "Well, you are right. It was like that." But I still had the feeling that that no, it was not like that. It was far worse because what? Because at that time there were no words. You know, there are very few books, at least to my knowledge. There are very few books, convincing books, about, uh, about depression, although it's an experience that, uh, you know, a lot of people know. There is a quite beautiful book by uh, William Styron, mm-hmm. but uh, I know that do, do you know something that, uh, that you think are convincing?
1: Well, when thinking about your work and thinking about depression... I have this little quote by Emily Dickinson that hangs over my writing desk, and I think it it speaks to what you're saying, that that there are no words. Um, Because she writes, I had a terror since September. I could tell to none, and so I sing, as the boy does by the burying ground, because I am afraid. Mm -hmm. And there's something about the word terror,
0: the word terror is right. It has to to see with terror. And which which takes us back to the horror and ghost stories that I began to read in my uh, teenage years. Because you must take them seriously. It's not only that these uh, terror horror stories and ghost stories. It's not only a joke. It's not only, you know, something, uh, well, cultural, genre, things like that. No, it's... It tries, to, it tries to put words on something for which there is no words. That's the, the great thing with this kind of story. You know, in the famous uh, stories of uh, Lovecraft, who uh, was one of the major reading experience of my youth, Lovecraft, he, he always says that things are so horrible that he can't uh, name them. And it, it's exactly the same.
1: Yes, I'm wondering about this particular question because we've been living through a pandemic now for 15 months, the whole world. And of course, there's a quiet pandemic also. There's a quiet pandemic in every country of depression and fragility. Yes, yeah, And this, this enormous sense of fragility. How have you been holding up under the pandemic?
0: You know, during the pandemic, there were people for whom it was very, very, very difficult. It honestly, it wasn't really for me because, you know, I, I, the lockdown was not that different from my everyday life, where I spent most of my time at home. Uh, I live in a decently big apartment. I didn't, and I had also the privilege that I was finishing the book, the Des Yoga, which uh, which was very uh, much easier for a writer than. Starting a book. I mm-hmm. I, I shared the experience with uh with some of the writers, all said that they are they had been trying to start a book, it was terrible. But mm-hmm. when you were, are in the process of finishing the book, a book on honestly, mm-hmm. the lockdown but it was a perfect uh, environment.
1: <laughs> uh
0: obviously the most terrible is for young people, for you know, for people who are beginning their lives. Young people, I mean, in their twenties, uh, they are. They have the feeling that one or two years of their lives, which which are so important in the construction of oneself, they have been stolen to them, and this is uh, this is terrible. There is another thing uh, which is maybe a bit uh, frivolous that uh, I ask myself what kind of books or films uh, will uh, describe uh, convincingly what happened to us during uh, more than. One year and a half, it will happen, and I am very uh, uh, interested and and, uh, and uh, curious to, to 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 read or watch that. Uh,
1: I have to make a little jump here in the conversation, but you did mention now history and how the pandemic will appear in books, and I want to make that little jump to your book, "The Kingdom." Were you? actually wanted to rediscover or explore your own faith, but you also wanted to write a story about the first Christians. Yeah. And Christianity. And there's something that you said in in a in the Norwegian newspaper, Vårt uh, about Christianity and your relationship to Christianity. And I, I wanted to quote that. You said that... I feel that I am a better Christian today than when I tried to be one. There was something very stiff about me then. Faith through pure will. So I feel that I am more of a Christian now, a bad Christian, but nevertheless, it's Christianity. Christianity is about being bad. I don't like the word sinner, but Christ came to give medicine to those who were sick. Not those who were in good health. And I just wanted you to comment on this idea of being a bad Christian (laughs) Uh, and that that is what you feel like now, and that that is somehow it's somehow to prefer to be the bad Christian than the good Christian uh, out of pure will.
0: Well, I. I can't say that. I do agree with myself saying that in, in this uh, part of my life, which is quite far away from me, which is, you know, in my early 30s, which I, I tell in, this, in the first part of this book, I, I decide quite voluntarily to be a Christian because I was very unhappy and I thought it was, you know, the solution. And so I decided, I tried to be a a Christian in a very uh, even dogmatic way, you know. I decide to believe to what the Catholic Church says, and uh, sometimes I, you know, people say, "Well, you have been a you have been a Christian, and then you you stopped being a Christian. You have lost faith, That's not really that. But what I what I stopped being is a is you know a devoted Christian, a devoted Catholic. But I still am. I am a reader of the Gospels, and I think the Gospels, it helps you at every day in your life. Not, not only that it comforts you, but it's, it's, uh, it gives you a good, good uh, direction. So, uh, and in fact, to read the, the Gospels, to, to even to try to live according to the Gospels, you don't have to believe in God, that's completely facultative. It's it's optional, <laughs> it's, uh, and and well, I can't say that I believe in God. I don't know what it means to believe in God, but I still believe in the profoundness and and ignorance uh, and and uh, and truth and uh, usefulness of the of the sentences of the Gospel of the sentences that uh, Jesus said. And now, you know, I try to be a good Christian and I, you know, if you are a Christian, the first thing is that you are convinced that you are a bad Christian. Uh, it's, uh, you, you are feeling that you are, not, uh, well, that's right that I don't like, the uh, word the sinner, that it's not such a, a bad, uh, well, I feel that you know you are miserable, that you know you are miserable, that you, you try to do better, that you, uh, you are so bad at that, so... Uh, you, you always lose on this on this field. But it's uh, well. That's the uh, that's that's the same thing. It's uh, I think you you have a better chance to be a good Christian if you agree to be to be a bad one. <laughs>
1: uh, in in the interview you did with White Mason in in the New York Times Magazine, White Mason writes: "Career's true subject isn't evil, but rapture." its precarious presence in our lives, how it disappears, how we become blind to it, how we seek it, how we become its prey, and how, if we are fortunate, it at last catches up to us. And I think White Mason's point is that what you really are writing about in many of your books is, is joy, that there is something joyous, that there are these moments of joy and rapture in all your books, and that that's what you're seeking. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Well, a moment before, I agree with myself. And uh, there, I, I... You know, I this uh, writer and journalist, uh, Wyatt Mason, uh, who uh, wrote about our meeting in the New York Times Review magazine, I thought he was so kind and clever. So I, I'm happy to, to agree about what he said and... So about, about, it's quite a uh, relief and and uh, joy to hear to to hear that you are not only someone who writes about sorrow and uh, and loss and uh, depression and uh, and guilt and uh, and the, the, the dark side of uh, of. Uh, well,
1: well, you write about all those things, but in those things, I mean, there's a crack in everything, right? that also about
0: the moments of uh, joy and some kind of epiphany, yeah? And, uh, well, I'm happy that he noticed that, and, and it, it even made me a bit more aware of that, and uh, I felt very grateful to him for this.
1: You know, there's a scene in yoga where you describe a YouTube clip of Chopin,
0: Yes, played by Martha Hagelich, yes.
1: Exactly. Can you tell me and, and our listeners that story? Because that's rapture, that's joy, isn't yes, it?
0: Yeah, the, the best thing would be to show it, but, but uh, the, the great thing is not only the sound, because, because, well, it's a very beautiful piece of Chopin, which is the Polonaise, Héroïque, and Martha Hagelich, who, who is a great and one well, and very uh, fascinating pianist plays it uh, with uh, great uh, passion and and uh, it's a great interpretation and uh, she plays that with uh, an enthusiasm in the very in the very uh, literal and etymological sense of it she's possessed by God <laughs> in the, and uh, there is a moment uh, in this video by the end of it where her head with her very uh, uh, black hair. And she has the great thing that she smiles. And her smile at this moment, which lasts two seconds, something like that, is incredibly both childish, ecstatic, incredibly joyful. And you have the feeling when you you watch this, first, when you have watched it once, you watch it again, to a second, the third time, because it's so wonderful. And you have, uh, you have a glance in, in paradise. But you know, the best thing to say to the people who are listening to us, is: to, it's very simple. You watch this, you you uh, find this on YouTube, you say, Marta Aguirre plays Polonaise héroïque, and you will find it immediately. You listen to it and you watch it and you, and in fact, people uh, who watch this uh, this video will be grateful to us because we told <laughs> it's a gift
1: absolutely it's uh we're going to put it in our show notes. Her smile comes exactly at five minutes and thirty seconds, but people should watch the whole video sure you know talking about rapture uh the rapture of music and the rapture of language, one author who gives me that I experience rapture when I read her is Anne Carson, who was in conversation with John Freeman on this very podcast. And she also has a question for you. And I want to play that question from Anne Carson. Emmanuel Carrere, can you tell me what is your favorite part of speech or grammatical construction and why?
0: Ah, (laughs) <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I need... Uh, uh,
1: you have all the time in the world to think about it. So I can think about
0: it and tell you?
1: Yes, but you have to tell me while we're still on the phone. Okay. You can't call me tomorrow and tell me. So okay. But I can let you think about it now.
0: Wait a moment, wait a moment. Well, uh, I don't know if it's... Uh, a very literal answer, but I have been all my life convinced that uh, my only, not only talent, my, my, but my only interest in uh, in reading and writing was prose, and uh, and that I was on the side of prose, which means novelists or historians, and. Very late in my life, I discovered the the power of poetry, which is not, you know, well. It means uh, it, it maybe I, I answer not literally to the to the to the question because it's not a, a rhetorical figure or things like that. That discovering the fact of writing um, poetry, which means writing in verse, which means writing lines that don't end. At the at the end of life, that changed my life, and it's also a different uh, a relationship with language to um, to learn to learn by heart the poetry, what I I never did before, and this was linked to the the experience of depression and of uh, what is called I don't know what you how you call that electroshock thing like that, which uh, which has a very bad effect on memory. And since my memory has been uh, uh, a bit uh, injured, I tried to um, to exercise it uh, by learning poetry. And well, that's that could be my answer. That what is very all my life has been on the side of prose, and very late I discovered poetry.
1: And do you remember any short poems now? Do you have any one from memory that you could read for me? Uh, yes in français you mean. Oui. Yes, yeah, in French well. Oh I can read uh, I, I know
0: quite a lot of poems in fact but I can read one of the most famous poems of uh, French language which one of the saddest and the simplest and most beautiful which is by Victor Hugo about uh, his uh, his dead uh, daughter uh, Léopoldine and he said demain dès l'aube à l'heure où blanchit la campagne Je partirai, vois-tu, je sais que tu m'attends. J'irai par la forêt, j'irai par les montagnes. Je ne puis demeurer près de toi, loin de toi plus longtemps. Je marcherai, les yeux fixés sur mes pensées, sans rien voir au dehors, sans entendre aucun bruit. L'autre sombre, les mains croisées, le tout courbé, et le jour pour moi sera comme la nuit. Je ne te regarderai ni l'or du soir qui tombe, ni les voiles qui, au loin, remotée vers rares fleurs et quand j'arriverai je croiserai sur cette tombe un bouquet de ouvert et de bruyères en fleurs it's one of the most uh, famous and beloved poetry poems of a uh, of French language and you know sometime, sometimes sometimes you go non our national monuments and uh, who is sometimes, even if he's always a genius, he is sometimes very pompous, very aggregate uh, uh, with, with his own genius. And this poem is one of the simplest of all the all of French language.
1: We are going to wind down now. This is our very last episode, at least for now. And usually I would have asked you, If you have a question for my next guest, but I don't actually have a next guest for this podcast that we've been doing now for a year because we're all going to take a break. Hopefully the world will open up again soon. We started it when the world closed down and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully we're going to open up. But how about if you ask the listeners a question? Because we've gotten quite a few listeners this last year from all over the world. And I was thinking, do you have a question to the listeners uh, who are readers and many are also probably writers? Most of them are, or all of them are somewhere now listening to us with their own struggles and their own joys and their own raptures. And I'm wondering if you have a... Question. Yeah, okay.
0: Uh, In fact, there are two questions which are the same. The first one is, are you happy? And the second one is, do you think it's that important in life to be happy?
1: Emmanuel Carrère, that was a great ending to this conversation and, and to this podcast. And I'm sure many will write with their answers and we will make sure to share these answers with you.
0: Ah, well. Wow.
1: Do you want to ask the question also in French, just to uh, conclude this podcast?
0: Ah, oui. Alors, ma question, c'est, est-ce que vous êtes heureux? Et il y a une deuxième question, c'est, est-ce que vous pensez qu'on est sur terre pour être heureux?
1: Emmanuel Carrère, thank you so much for joining me here at the House of Literature in Oslo for how to proceed. Thank you. Thank you, Linulman. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. It sure was. This podcast was produced by the House of Literature. Please check out our show notes for links to some of the things Karin and Ullmann talked about in this episode. And remember to subscribe to our podcast Lit House, where we publish international conversations and lectures from the House of Literature.